Hello and welcome to an episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to the Song of Ice and Fire series by George R. R. Martin, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones on HBO. Today we are going to discuss Skegos. This is a spoilery episode. If you haven't uh, read all the books, you may not have even heard of Skagos. Uh, it hasn't been mentioned in the books a lot. In fact, there's zero mentions of it in the first book. But it has become very important, and we want to talk about it. It's a standalone topic. One of our new format, shorter episodes. We're still doing the longer ones, in case you haven't seen our History of Westeros update video, which I encourage you to watch if you haven't. Um, so, without any further ado, let's talk about Skagos. The island sat at the mouth of the Bay of Seals, massive and mountainous, a stark and forbidding land peopled by savages. They lived in caves and grim mountain fastnesses, Sam had read, and rode great shaggy unicorns to war. Skagos meant stone in the old tongue. The Skagosi named themselves the Stoneborn, but their fellow Northmen called them Skags and liked them little. Only a hundred years ago, Skagos had risen in rebellion. Their revolt had taken years to quell and claimed the life of the Lord of Winterfell and hundreds of his sworn swords. Some songs said the Skags were cannibals. Supposedly their warriors ate the hearts and livers of the men they slew. In ancient days, the Skagossi had sailed to the nearby Isle of Skane, seized its women, slaughtered its men, and ate them on a pebbled beach in a feast that lasted for a fortnight. Skane remained unpeopled to this day. Sounds like a very welcoming place, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, as we know, Davos is being sent there to, uh, by Lord Manderly. Here's his reaction to that. He says, For half a heartbeat, Davos considered asking Wyman Manderly to send him back to the wolf's den, to, ser- to sare Bartimus with his tails and Garth with his lethal ladies. In the den, even prisoners ate porridge in the morning. But there were other places in this world where men were known to break their fast on human flesh. So Davos is scared of going there. And right there, that tells you something, but Davos was willing to attempt the murder of Melisandre, whom he had seen <laughs> giving birth to a shadow baby, and he knew she can sometimes see the future. Mm-hmm. On top of that, Davos was willing to try and kill Melisandre after he saw her drink poison and live. But he does not want to go to Skagos. So, this place scares him, so that has to tell you a lot. So apart from the infamous reputation of its people, the island itself is rather inhospitable and difficult to approach. Here's another quote. More from Davos. Nine and twenty ships had set sail from the wall. If half of them were still afloat, Davos would be shocked. Black skies, bitter winds, and lashing rains had hounded them all the way down the coast. The galleys Oledo and Old Mother's Son had been driven onto the rocks of Skagos, the Isle of Unicorns, and Cannibals, where even the blind bastard had failed Feared to land, rather. The blind bastard, whose name, by the way, is Roro Euhorus, which I think sounds like Scooby-Doo is trying to say his name. <laughs> but uh, he was the captain of a ship that Davos got his start on. He wasn't blind or a bastard. He just smuggled and traded in a lot of sketchy places. He was executed for trading weapons to the wildlings, even. By the Night's so Watch. He was, you hear that? He was trading to the wildlings. Davos, and so Davos says some of the people he traded with had never even seen a trading ship before, and so he was clearly bold enough to trade with the wildlings is a bold thing to do that will get you killed, clearly, but he wouldn't go to Skagos. Now, it is probably hard to land a ship at Skagos uh, that we, we know, a, we, we think we know, of a port slash harbor there, but that might not be open to a smuggler, 
So that might be part of the problem. It could also be that there's just not enough worth trading there. It might just be bad business. But anyway, both Sam and Davos do see a wrecked galley there, which gives you... It's the same wrecked galley, we're pretty sure, in different chapters. They see it kind of coming and going. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just kind of gives you an idea, once again, of kind of how treacherous the water around it is. It's The currents are dangerous, and, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just not very friendly. This, there is another quote. Um, we're, we're very quoteful today. There is a, this quote becomes as Darian and Sam are sailing past. Darian knew the songs as well. When the, when the bleak gray peaks of Skagos rose up from the sea, he joined Sam at Blackbird's prow and said, If the gods are good, we may catch a glimpse of a unicorn. If the captain is good, we won't come that close. The currents are treacherous around Skagos. And we already know the mountain clans for instance, cling to old traditions and are fierce fighters. We know similar things about the wildlings. Both of these peoples are what they are in part because of their relative isolation combined with the harshness of the, the, harshness of the places they live. Uh, the, this discourages outsiders from settling in. So Skagos has all of those factors in play. They, the remoteness, the harsh climate, but though, it's to an even greater degree than those mountainous places on the mainland, and even more so the north of the wall in a lot of ways. That's a really important point. I mean, Skagos extends north well past the wall, and I think that's a potentially huge piece of detail. Yeah, we're going to talk about that little tidbit throughout this episode, how important that is and what it could mean for the future. So all these isolating factors come together to paint a picture that we can call a microcosm of ancient northern civilization. It's like uh, almost like a time capsule in some ways. A glimpse of what much of the north was like many centuries or even, even eons ago. Here's another telling quote. The maesters will tell you that King Jaehaerys abolished the lord's right to the first night to appease his shrewish queen. But where the old gods rule, old customs linger. The umbers keep the first night too, denied as they may. Certain of the mountain clans as well. And on Skagos... Well, only heart trees ever see half of what they do on Skagos. And that's coming from Roos Bolton. Mm-hmm. Roos mentions that the Umbers still hold to the first night. Remember that the first night is that tradition which states that a lord has the right to deflower a bride before her groom-to-be. So, yeah, there's that. That's weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people remember that from Braveheart. That's probably the most mm-hmm. famous mention of that tradition ever. We're not actually sure that it was a real tradition in our world Historians debate over it, but whatever. It's certainly real enough in A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. So, the Umbers are north and east of the wall, or east of the Dreadfort, rather. Uh, basically in between the Boltons and Skagos, with the wall nearby. So, the old traditions were mentioned to linger there as well. Uh, so, it's becoming kind of clear if you look at a map. If you go, kind of go out north and east from Winterfell or from the Dreadfort, this is kind of where civilization has kind of, kind of held the old ways, the longest. This is what you want to call civilizing of the north. It's happened very gradually, kind of extending out from that direction. Uh, so the farther north and east you go, the more you see these throwback rites and rituals. Following that pattern, Skagos would be the least touched by this modern civilization, once again in air quotes. And we're already talking about the north, which is already less civilized than the rest of Westeros in a lot of ways. So we're talking about what southerners would look at as a backwater in a backwater in a backwater, <laughs> you know, in a coal and cold, and no one want to go there. So, if there are still Northerners offering blood sacrifice, 
which we have evidence that this happened in the past, and there's certain quite a bit of evidence for it, in fact, and we'll, we'll get into some of that a bit as well. If that's still happening, and we know that it was probably happening maybe 500 years ago, if not more recently, Skagos would be the first place you'd want to look if you'd want to find evidence of this still happening. Now, it's, it's, it's unlikely that there's still a connection like this now, but it's possible that Skagos was some sort of ally or subject to the Dreadfort itself long ago. Cannibals and flayed men? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's maybe a bit of a stretch, but perhaps in the ancient past, they had more of a common thread to, to unite them. We don't actually have any evidence for this. It's pure mm-hmm. conjecture. It's fun <laughs> to conjecture on. More likely, though, the Dreadfort was a buffer against unity in the north because the, the Dreadfort and Winterfell fought each other for so long. Uh, the Winterfell, of course, usually got the best of that, but not always. That prevented these lands around the Dreadfort and other areas in the north from being settled. There's just no way to do this when they're constantly fighting and small folk are being mm-hmm. slaughtered and things like that. You just There's just no time for that, no, no ability to, to get these things going. So the long-term rivalry, in other words, is not good for the advancement of civilization. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in those times prior to United North, it seems as if the lands east of the Dreadfort were less settled. There, there are several tales told about the eastern areas of the north which are relatively recent when, well, when compared to the very long history of the North. And these stories are full of rebellion. Carhold is a good example, as it lies near to the eastern shores of the Bay of Ice and the Shivering Sea. I wish we had our maps behind this, but we do not. <laughs> uh, originally called Car- Carl's Hold, it's a little bit difficult for me to say, it was granted to Carlin Stark for service in wars against the rebellious Dreadfort. The same goes for what is now White Harbor, which was held, among others, by cadet branches of House Stark. The last of which was named House Grey Stark, which is a pretty cool name. I wish they were still around. <laughs> they joined the Dreadfort in rebellion and ceased to exist by the end of that conflict. It seems as though House Stark slowly pushed east from Winterfell and Skagos was the last holdout. So more, a little more proof of that or more evidence for that. I don't know if you can call it proof. <laughs> Referring back to the quote we started this episode with, in addition to our research on the history of House Stark, we know that the Skagosi rebelled about 100 years ago. So roughly around AL 200, so beginning of the 3rd century since Aegon Landing. The Stark lord who died to the Skagosi would be Brandon, according to our research. That would be the last Brandon who was Lord of Winterfell. This is the last northern rebellion that we know of as well. Uh, And it fits quite well with our notions about civilization coming to the north slowly, gradually pushing north and east, and maybe west as well. We're not really dealing with them today, though, uh, from Winterfell. So roughly a hundred years, rather roughly a thousand years ago, the Dreadfort bent the knee. Three hundred years later, they rose up again, and Carhold appeared after one of those conflicts. About two hundred years after that, Edric Snowbeard, king in the north, his great-grandson, known as Ice Eyes, (laughs) violently ejected slavers from their riverside stronghold on the White Knife. And we're told by Sir Bartimus, again, Sir Bartimus is a knight who, like his ancestors, keeps the old gods. This is very unusual, a knight who worships the old gods. Well, his ancestors are from the north, so he may, he may be uh, anointed in the light of the seven like many White Harbor knights are. Well, all mm-hmm. White Harbor knights, all knights are anointed in the light of the seven. Um, well, maybe there's a couple exceptions maybe, but we won't get into that. So that's just a real unusual thing right there, is a, a guy who keeps the old gods but is anointed in the faith of the seven. Anyway... His ancestors, he says, his ancestors and people at this time, after this incident with the slavers and Ice Eyes Stark, they hung the entrails of these slavers in trees, in heart trees, as sacrifice to the old gods. So, 
with all this timeline and these gradual submissions of these other fortresses, we're going to guess that Skagos was the last holdout and that it maybe submitted to Winterfell maybe six or seven hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's just a guess, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's consider alternatives. George absolutely loves to play with rumor, gossip, and hearsay, and we've talked about that on several occasions in previous episodes. It's possible that ignorance of the truth has bred stories that have grown with the telling. I suspect even the maesters themselves are frequently misinformed about Skagos. There's no maester there, and Roose Bolton himself says only the heart trees see half of what happens on the island. The place is utterly mysterious and largely uncharted, to us at least, so we won't arrive at any firm conclusions. Yeah, we're kind of just trying to get at the fact that what we hear about Skagos may not be accurate. But what George likes to do is he likes to always have a kernel of truth in anything that's exaggerated. So we can try to search for that truth, that kernel, so to speak. So let's look at some more evidence that points to the place being a bit more civilized than it seems. And we're not trying to say it is civilized or nice. We're just trying to maybe separate some rumor from whatever fact we might be able to get at. There is a house Magnar of Skegos. Now, Magnar means lord in the old tongue, so it's kind of a, it's kind of like just calling them chief, saying this, these guys are in charge. It's it's very basic, but it is lord a, lord lord lord. <laughs> it is so that, that's a kind of a sign. Maybe that's not such a sign that they're civilized, but it does at least show that they have. Some sort of structure, some sort of hierarchy. Maybe, of course, for all we know, the people don't actually follow this guy. And he has a, he's just a title and name only. But there's, you know, considering they rebelled and everything, they're, they're, there's got to be some sort of unification there. Um, so they're sworn to House Stark, though. There's other houses mentioned on Skagos and semi-canon sources, but we don't deal with semi-canon sources because, quite frankly, we've found them to be wrong too many times. So mm-hmm. we just don't even, we won't go there. <laughs> uh, what we do know, we know there's at least one port or known harbor as the cha- as the captain of the ship taking Jano Slint to the wall tells Tyrion he'll be stopping at Skagos. So perhaps the blind bastard was not afraid of Skagos. He merely thought it would be bad business, not worth the difficult landing to trade with a thin population with few natural natural resources. To trade back. Maybe they should have just dropped Jano Slint off at Skagos instead <laughs> of uh, at the wall. I wish. That guy had some meat on his bones. <laughs> they would have looked at him and be like, oh, this ship just brought dinner. <laughs> so, Wildling King Bale the Bard pretended to be from Skagos when he infiltrated Winterfell. Now, he called himself Sig Eric. Uh, I guess. I don't know how to pronounce that. And that was an effective enough ruse, I suppose. His plan worked. He infiltrated Winterfell and made off with a daughter of Lord Stark. But the key here is that that didn't send up any red flags. No one was like, what? A guy from Skagos? A bard from Skagos? <laughs> so apparently he thought this would be a good ruse, a good um, a good disguise, and it worked. It didn't send up any red flags. You'd think that if coming from Skagos was weird... Uh, then he would not have chosen that to be his, you know, his his uh, alibi or whatever. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of reason to think that maybe some of these stories are a little bit exaggerated. So let's talk about the main thing that that is associated with Skagos. So let's talk about cannibalism. <laughs> uh, the Ice River clans. That's a wildling clan that lives far to the northwest. I think I believe they're along the frozen shore. And they're known to be man-munchers. They're cannibals. Uh, people tell stories about them. But apart from them, 
And the, to keep in mind that the wildlings are a very diverse group, you shouldn't calling the wildlings the wildlings and expecting you know to make generalizations about them. For the most part, that's going to be a failure because they're actually pretty diverse. Uh, other than some things to deal with religion and the fact that they're all living in a general area that's somewhat similar. But even amongst them, there's quite a few differences. Uh, and then this is a good, good time to point some of those things out. So cannibalism seems to be frowned upon even amongst the whole of the wildlings. D- despite their diversity, this is still something that is not really looked on kindly. Veramir Sixkins, the famous skin changer who had the prologue in The Dance of Dragons to himself, mm-hmm. his uh, mentor... Hagon tells him that eating human flesh, even while inside the skin of an animal, is an abomination. Though Veramir also thinks that not all skin changers felt as Hagen did. Well, Veramir himself is willing to do it. We see him do it. He eats a man or and a baby and other things while he's in one of his wolves shortly after the battle at mm-hmm. the wall. Uh, but he endeavors to point out in his inner monologue mm-hmm. that he never ate human flesh himself with his own mouth. So... Even though he took pleasure eating human flesh as an animal, he still wouldn't do it as a person, even when he was you know, starving and dying himself. Interestingly, when he's dying, actually, in front of the werewood, he looks at the werewood and he feels as though it's judging him. And he, he, sa- he, he says, or thinks, rather, that, you know, this is what you made me. You made me this beast that would eat human flesh. You don't judge me for these things that I've done. Which I certainly, I, I think it's a very interesting Yeah, it's thought. like he's blaming the old gods. He's like, you made me this way. He's, mm-hmm. he's, it's the, the mark of a man who fears, after, fears for what he's done, fears for some sort of judgment in the mm-hmm. afterlife, but is blaming it on the people who gave him the ability to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty dark. In any case, uh, I believe the cannibal stories are likely to be exaggerated, though I think there must be some truth to them. If you consider the fact that they live in the midst of mountain peaks jutting out of the sea, they are extremely far north, about half of the main island is north of the wall even, food might be a bit scarce. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps cannibalism has occurred as a result of famine, not unlike what we saw in Stannis' army, or at Hardhome with Perfect the wildlings. Example. So imagine a really bad northern winter, like maybe the one that's coming up, <laughs> yeah. uh, in a place like, like Skagos, and maybe that paints a picture of people who resort to cannibalism as a last resort, not as a preference. Skagos might very well be a place that simply dictates this last resort relatively often. Then again, the concept of eating your enemies to gain strength has been seen in plenty of places, both in the real world and in the Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, it's in, that, it's in the opening quote uh, yeah. that we started this episode with, yeah. the talk of how they eat the hearts and livers of their mm-hmm. of the slain dead to gain their strength. So, yeah, we're trying to separate rumor from fact, and it's challenging, but it is a lot of fun, isn't it? Anyway, exaggerated or not, cannibals, unicorns, mysterious yeah. apparent savages are great fodder for discussion. It's a lot of fun to talk about these things. But we have yet to touch on the main person of interest we have in relation to Skagos, and that's, of course, Rickon Stark. He went there with Shaggy Dog and Osha, thanks to Wex Pike, Theon's former squire, who is currently hiding at Lord Manderley's court. Uh, Manderley knows that Rickon is the real deal because of the direwolf. The wolves are a wonderful device that all that makes Rickon's identity certain without you know a DNA test or something to like that effect. Basically, we're in normally in a song of ice and fire. People are le- left to kind of judge people's birth when it's unknown based on their appearance and the way they behave. You know, if someone claims to be the son of a great lord and he's a great fighter, that lord's a lot more likely to say, "Yeah, that's my son," because <laughs> the dude is, you know, 
doing him proud. He's a good representative. He's like, I'd be happy to call this guy part of my family. Mm-hmm. But if some guy comes along and says, I'm your son, and he's a you know drunken sot, even if you know he is, you might be like, well, I've never seen this kid before. <laughs> so these kinds of things are important in Westeros. But, there's, but Rickon has a dire wolf that's loyal to him, and it's a symbolic of the old gods. There's no way around that. There, it, he is who he says he is. You just can't fake that. Mm-hmm. So using Joffrey as an example... The only way that it would ever be proven for sure, even though we readers know, is that if both Jamie and Cersei just admitted it. And <laughs> even then, it's not for sure. Yeah, they could be lying. They could be lying. I don't know why they tell that lie, but it's possible. I don't know why Ned Stark would lie about being both, a traitor. You know, they both lied that it wasn't their child. And, and That's yeah. true. So... People sometimes people are forced to lie about things they don't want to, they another, don't want to lie about. Da- another thing we have like that: Danny's dragons. Mm-hmm. Another way DNA test. Another <laughs> Westerosi DNA test. Dragons and direwolves. That's right. <laughs> Danny is got. They both have the proof of, in the pudding right there. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't you can't beat that. Dragon pudding, wolf pudding, <laughs> delicious. <laughs> so the wolf itself also answers. A blooming question we have yet to raise, which speaks to the same question that we're raising about maybe Skagos not being quite as bad as it sounds. And that is, why the heck did Rickon go there in the first place? If it is such a dangerous, awful, evil place, why on earth would you send this heir who you're trying to protect? Mm -hmm. Why would you send him there? That seems really backwards. Well, first of all, he has to go somewhere. Once again, because of the direwolf. It's a dead giveaway as to who he is. He can't hide at White Harbor. That was Master Lewin's first suggestion. Take him to White Harbor or to maybe to the Umbers. He was just kind of throwing things out there. He knows the Manderleys are loyal because of the pledge that they signed and made to the Starks a thousand years ago. Um, so Lord Manderley himself would know that he can't keep Rickon out in the open. So he has to go somewhere. Now, perhaps Osha knows people there. She's a wildling. Maybe she has connections there, uh, maybe she's not. She's pretty bold. She is bold, though. She's certainly was among the wildlings, some of the first wildlings to flee the north in advance of Mance Raider. Um, of course, she got around the wall with some of her friends and, Hope. you know, ended up in a better place after some, some rough times. <laughs> <laughs> but I think maybe so. It's possible that her boldness uh, just allowed her to select Skagos as a place because she just knew it would be a place no one would look. And mm-hmm. she felt like they could hide out there. Mm-hmm. You know? Might be that simple. But there's other possibilities. Uh, one theory is that the rebellion of the Skagosi was ended via marriage pact. Perhaps there is some Skagosi blood in the veins of the living Starks. We don't have to assume any family connections, but it is a tempting notion. Uh, we'll certainly see more in the Winds of Winter, uh, you know, if there's nothing in the world of Ice and Fire, which is going to be awesome. We certainly hope there is something in yes. there. But if not, the Winds of Winter should definitely teach us something. Yeah. Well, if you can't wait to see Skagos, can't wait to see a unicorn, actually, you already have. A wild rain lashed down upon his black brother as he tore at the flesh of an enormous goat, washing the blood from his side where the goat's long horn had raked him. That's a John Wolf dream. We have seen Skagos. We have seen a unicorn. When they say Black Brother, remember, they mean Shaggy Dog, not a Black Brother of the Night's Watch. Right. <laughs> yes. Or a Black Brother. <laughs> so a goat with a long horn. We hear that sometimes they ride these things maybe into war. That sounds mm-hmm. kind of cool. Yeah. And really, it's funny to think about unicorns being this magical, mystical animal. But really, like, 
This is a world that has dragons and krakens <laughs> and men who can see through the eyes of them. <laughs> this is just a horse with a horn. I mean, really, yeah. it's not really that. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a big, hairy, shaggy beast that's it's more like a sort of like a, more like an aurochs with a horn than a okay. horse. But or, you know, of course, the, the term we see here is goat through the for the wolf's eyes. It looks like a large goat, an enormous goat. Yeah, it is enormous. There is that. So, so what's next, though? We, let's let's throw out a few predictions for Rickon and that whole plot line. Davos comes to save Rickon, Osha, and Shaggy, and they head off happily to White Harbor. Yeah, doesn't sound like George R. R. Martin, does it? It can't be that easy. I do believe Rickon is the sort of child that will inspire fierce devotion in the warlike, uh, most likely proud Skagosi. He's a really tough, precocious, brave child, you know, from what it seems like, and his wolf kind of reflects his personality. Mm. Um, how kind of angry and, and full of rage he is based on, you know, he was ejected from his family far too young of an age to understand it. He's got all these all these kind of wild traits associated with him. I kind of think the Skags will really like him. I think he's going to be like, this is the kind of kid we're proud of. And they know he's a Stark. And remember, even the wildlings north of the Wall revere Stark blood as much as they um, hate the Black Brothers and, and some of the other kneelers, as they call them. They still have a place in their kind of pantheon of respect for Stark blood. Even John got a little bit of grudging. Maybe not. Maybe respect isn't the right word, but a bit of deference, perhaps. A bit of grudging. Yeah, yeah, you're a Stark. Okay, that means something. You know, that kind of thing. So, it's possible as well that the Skags feel honored by Rickon's presence. Not unlike how John told the the Mountain, uh, rather told Stannis that. Take spending time amongst the mountain clans would do them honor because they hadn't seen a king since the days of Torrin Stark. Well, these are sort of similar ancient northern people, so it kind of stands to reason that the same thing would be true for them. Uh, the blood of the most powerful, revered house in, on the history of the North, by a wide margin, <laughs> comes to live amongst them, and he's possibly the heir to Winterfell. I think a lot of them are going to be pretty happy about that, quite proud, and perhaps when Rickon leaves there... He may have a small army of Skags wanting to come with him. He's like, we're gonna. This is we're his men. We are staying with him. We're protecting him. I would love to see that. That would be really fun. I think we all would. Yeah. <laughs> so he's also one more interesting tidbit about that is though he is. Think about where he is. Think about the kind of character he is. He's a bit of the embodiment of the wild Starks, the the untamed North, and now he's going to live amongst the mm. least tamed Northerners for a little while. And if. If our predictions about them liking him, or him liking them, if any of that is like remotely true, then these guys are going to bond, and he's going to take on some of their attitudes and, and traditions as well. So Rickon could come out to be this really wild, dangerous badass. I'm, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the wildlings are fleeing through the wall to escape the whites, the others, the advancing cold. Well, they, you know, they have a large body of water to protect them, right? Remember again that Skagos is a bit of a narrow island that extends past the wall. To that, I refer you to the falling and consider what may be in store for Skagos. At hard home, with six ships, Blackbird lost with all hands. Two Lyseni ships driven aground on Skane. Talon taking water. Very bad here. Wildlings eating their own dead. Uh-huh. Dead things in the woods. Bravosi captains will only take women, children on their ships. Witch women call us slavers. Attempt to take Stormcrow defeated. Six crew dead. Many wildlings. Eight ravens left. Dead things in the water. Send help by land. Seas racked by storms. From Talon by hand of Maester Harmoon. Talon is a ship of the Night's Watch. 
in the Bay of Seals right now, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that sounds pretty terrible. They're dealing with all these problems. We've got wildling eating their own dead, as we I, pointed out. By the way, I just thought of one good thing about eating their dead. What's that? can't burn it you can't do anything with it at least you eat them they won't come back that's true that's better yeah, than yeah better, better than the white coming along we'll so be way much better perhaps in the future we'll see some half-eaten whites <laughs> <laughs> so if those dead things in the water which is one of the most chilling sentences in the entire series in my opinion dead things in the water and he sees them and like they're doing things apparently they're not just there floating they're if you think about remember back we, we have stuff <coughs> down uh, near the veil uh, we have that mention of, what are they called, squishers? The squishers, yeah, that's your crackpot point, yeah. yeah. From from good old Dick Crab mm-hmm. telling uh, the, the legends of, of the uh, that area, the Brienne and Pod. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what if those things come to life as, mm-hmm. as undead? That's, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So what happens if the dead things in the water find their way to Skegos and they overrun the whole island before anyone in the mainland even knows about it? Ugh. you got this isolated place and they just kind of run, so... The only thing worse than a frozen island full of deadly cannibal savages and unicorns would be a frozen island full of living dead cannibal savages and unicorns. Actually, an undead unicorn ridden by a white or another would be pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> and, you know, freaking cool. Stark turns into one as well. And his dire wolf, you can, you can have a little undead baby boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. no, no, I want Rickon to be alive, so. riding a live unicorn. Yeah, Let's maybe have that's that. not so awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's but not so awesome. Picture an island filled with, you know, whites. Well, hopefully Rickon gets off that yeah. before that happens. Sounds horrifying. It starts though, at the truly. northern tip of Skegos. He's at the southern tip. He escapes before... <laughs> Yeah. I, I prefer just the island stays okay. I like Skagos. Even though we don't know much about it, I mean, as we've talked about, it sounds pretty awesome. It does, doesn't it? I mean, I like the mountain clans a lot already. They are so. really cool. The, the, the way they're, they're, they're probably going to make the difference for Stannis in, in the north yeah. there. Um, certainly, they've, they're going to be a player major role. Speaking of the mountain clans, there's a possible connection between them and the Skagossi. Remember that Skagos means stoneborn in the old tongue. And stone has the connotation that is similar to some of the names of the mountain clans. House Slate is a perfect example. Slate is a type of stone. Uh, And there's also House Flint. And remember, there are three Flint houses in the north. There's one that uh, is in the far north, uh, northwest Winterfell. That's the mountain clans that are the stands. Yes. My favorite flints. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the Flints of Widow's Watch, which is east of White Harbor, so on one side of the map. And then there are the Flints of Flint's Finger, which is in the west, like pretty much as far south in the north as you can get, pretty much. Right, they're, they're re- directly north of the Iron Islands. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of uh, extra data there from the mountain clans, and hopefully we'll find out more about their connection to Skagos. That's all we've got for now. Uh, Make sure to uh, rate us on iTunes if you enjoyed this podcast. That's one of the things that really helps us. So thanks again for listening, and watch out for dead things in the water. Until next time.